Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and this is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I complete my reading of Chapter 5 from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about life in the Church. The closer I got to the end of my divinity studies, the more determined I became not only to graduate, but to be ordained. I referred to it as waiting for my flight clearance. No questions now remained. Or did they? The roller coaster ride continues. I want to hear it. In the spring of 1978, my music career now behind me, I upped the hours of my job at the liquor store and registered for the fall term at Trinity to start again on my second year. I'd be joining the class with whom I had such a short time ago shared my peaceful, easy feeling about being a divinity student at Trinity. Meanwhile, the diocese must have kept my name on their Rolodex when they needed a layperson to fill out the roster of interviewers for the next ACPO, not knowing I'd signed up to resume my divinity studies, they asked me. I felt it would be fascinating to see the process from the inside, so I agreed. My task over the course of that weekend was to interview three prospective postulants for ordination. I was part of a three-member interview team, chosen for our diverse ages and stages in life, The team included a priest, a psychologist, and me, now just a person in the pew. We would interview the applicants separately, compare notes, and then share our findings with the other teams in a larger group meeting. Some of my former classmates would be among the applicants. We held the cards that would advance them or deny them in their quest for ordination. I suppose someone should have considered the wisdom of including me, a former divinity student, among the assessors, but I was not given any of the people I knew personally to interview, so it appeared on the surface to be fine, until it came to Jim. Jim's interviewer reported back to the larger group of assessors that he sensed Jim was a homosexual, which is how we talked back then. He wasn't sure how to confirm this, so he asked for the group's advice. Technically, an admission of homosexual orientation would not have discounted Jim as a postulant. There was nothing wrong with being gay, just with acting gay. It was understood that an ordained person who was gay, we hadn't got around to considering all the other possibilities along the spectrum of sexual orientation, would live out their life celibate, or, as we used to say, non-practicing. But such an admission would also be a stigmatizing red flag to the diocese. It might mean that those candidates' superiors would keep an eye on them for disqualifying defects. 
no one wanted to create the conditions for scandal. The very kind that erupted, full-blown, years later, when my successor at St. Philip's in Unionville was discovered to have a partner of the same sex sharing the rectory with him. The diocese convened a bishop's court to establish the nature of his offense. He lost his job. A small army of supporters rallied to take up his cause. The media became involved, and it was an unholy mess. That kind of scandal. Why don't you just ask him? One of the other assessors said from across the circle. Others nodded their agreement. The interviewer nodded too. Okay, he said. That's what he'd do. I knew Jim from my early days at Trinity. I knew he was a gay man. But I kept this to myself. I didn't think it was any of their business, though I was too new to the process to say so openly. The real scandal, I thought was not what would happen if the church ordained a gay man. It was that the church felt it had the right to ask in the first place. The next time the assessors met, Jim's interviewer returned with his answer. Jim said he was not a homosexual. That was that, and everyone moved on to other business. Everyone, I imagined, but Jim. In order to pursue the ministry to which he felt called— in order to serve the church as the person God created him to be, Jim had chosen another option, which was to lie. What this said about the church was that hypocrisy started right at the door where people offered themselves for ministry. What this said about Jim was that his acceptance by the church as a postulant, as a Christian, and even as a human being was conditional. Unlike the message of unconditional love, he would be preaching to everyone else as a priest. The lesson I took away was this. Be wary of the gatekeepers. The assessors were not bad people. They were serving the church with their time and their gifts of discernment, but their service was rendered with an unspoken assumption. The priesthood was to be populated by people like themselves, by ministers who, as reflections of a group norm, would comfort the afflicted with their familiarity and not afflict the comfortable with their individuality. The ACPO assessors were guardians of the status quo. They were not pioneers of the new or the novel. The church, as they saw it, needed pastors, not prophets. This was particularly instructive because when I returned to Trinity to resume my studies, I still had to face ACPO myself for further follow-up on my authority issues. The first time, I had been completely transparent. My assessors were alarmed by what they saw, by my brashness and by my independent streak. True, I was only 21 at the time and probably premature in my exploration of a call to ministry and, to their credit, they saw enough potential not to dismiss me outright, but once burned. So when my time came again, later in the year, I gave my ACPO assessors everything they wanted. I attended all the plenary sessions, I spoke up and offered thoughtful observations, I was positive, I leaned forward to engage with my interviewers, my earnestness driving one of them deeper and deeper into the back of his chair. When another revealed that she was a charismatic Christian, well, my lord, I was one too. 
I shared with her uncritically about the years I'd spent in that tent. I may even have said, Praise the Lord. At the end of the day, I left them no room for doubt. I was, in their written assessment of me, a personable, warm, reflective, articulate, responsive man of integrity. They recommended me enthusiastically for holy orders. I returned to Trinity in the fall of 1978. Following my failed attempt to be a working musician, I was ready to pick up where I'd left off the year before. I felt confident going back to school. Church and academia were a better fit for me than the music business, where my competence as a professional musician remained dubious and my business sense hadn't emerged at all. I was already a committed church person and a passable student, These were areas of proven aptitude and ability, and it felt good to be immersing myself in them once again. If only I could just keep my head down this time and commit to the road ahead. I discovered something that would help rekindle my enthusiasm for my studies. By opting to do a thesis rather than completing regular coursework, I could define my own area of study and earn an honors degree rather than the basic Master's in Divinity, I could pretty much write my own ticket. What was there not to like about that? It was like York University all over again and my individualized studies program. Also, unbeknownst to me, while I'd be mining for academic kudos, I'd be unearthing questions about the church and my place in it that would haunt me through my entire ministry right to the very end. I worked with a faculty advisor to carve out a focus for my study, something that was not already covered by the curriculum. That focus turned out to be an area neglected not only by the academy, but also by the church in general, the rising influence in our culture of mass communication. Referencing a parable of Franz Kafka, Couriers, I asked what role the church wanted to play in the new world of mass communication, Couriers or Kings, which was the title I gave to my thesis. Kafka's parable went like this. They were given the choice between becoming kings or the couriers of kings. In the manner of children, they all wanted to be couriers. As a result, there are only couriers. They gallop through the world shouting to each other messages that, since there are no kings, have become meaningless. Gladly would they put an end to their miserable existence, but they dare not because of their oaths of service. It was a cryptic story. I was not entirely conscious myself of its deeper insinuations. My focus was mass communication, but the parable was salient for the church in other ways, too. Did the church expect its people its clergy in particular, simply to be the bearers of messages given to us by others, by kings long dead, from ages long ago, messages that had lost any meaningful connection to us? Were we to be held to our thankless task by our own oaths of service, beginning with our baptism, but culminating in the obedience pledged by ordinance to their bishop? Or were we actually to embody the message we delivered, 
to offer our lives as the message itself, speaking our own truths, couriers or kings. For the purposes of my thesis, I simply wanted to argue that, as Marshall McLuhan had taught us, the medium was also itself the message. It mattered how the Church engaged mass communication to relate with the world. The story we had to tell was not only shaped by the way we told it, it actually existed in that telling. We were not merely couriers of someone else's message— We were sovereign entities embodying the message we delivered. We did not have to be couriers at all. We could be kings. Specifically, I wanted to say that the Church had to assume its own authority when telling its story electronically. It couldn't take for granted that buying ad space and saying Jesus is the reason for the season wouldn't actually damage the message, rendering it trite and condescending nor that the television talk show format which the televangelists embraced unquestioningly was the best approach to Christian programming. The medium and the message had to be conceived together. But beneath my academic concern, I was also asking something else, something more personal and even more pressing. I wanted to know if becoming a priest would make me a courier or a king? Would the church allow me to be myself, to deliver its message in my own inimitable way, to embody it with my own God-given eccentricities, or would I need to bend my story to the churches, delivering it only in the prescribed ways expected of me in my life and in my words, as Jim was forced to do at ACPO? Would it mean the actual loss of my freedom if I bounded about delivering messages entrusted to me from some higher court? One theological principle that received a lot of attention at Trinity was incarnation, God assuming human flesh in the person of Jesus. This brokered a cosmic exchange of sorts. It brought God down to us, making God accessible— and it lifted us up to God, making us worthy. In Christ, God emptied himself, we read in Scripture, taking the form of a servant, while we ourselves were being raised up to become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. It was a good trade, and at the level of theology, a useful concept. But how far did it go? What did that look like in practice? Did we really believe every person embodied the living God, or was it only those with a recognizable faith in Jesus Christ? Did the good news only apply to Christians, or was the Church willing to see Christ in all persons? And to me, it was even more personal. Was the Church willing to see Christ in me? If these questions about the inclusiveness of God's grace had been more conscious, I might have interpreted my experience at ACPO more ominously. That had already given me the answer to my questions, and that answer should have rung off the walls like an alarm. The Church was not very inclusive after all. But I was pretty far along in my studies by then, and the goal was within sight— I had already taken my gap year to consider a different path, so I kept the focus to my thesis narrow. 
how can the church use mass communication in a way that doesn't compromise its message? The larger questions would have to be settled along the way. My third year at Trinity was unlike any other I'd known at university. We were entering our final months of study, and soon we'd be launched into our priestly careers. You could feel the anticipation, even the jubilation, as we met up in the buttery. Classmates who had started out tentatively, unsure of themselves in this strange new world, now swished down the college hallways in their academic gowns, tossing theological terms over their shoulders as they went, like realized eschatology and substitutionary atonement as casually as ordering a latte. My thesis work was wrapping up. Graduation was coming into view in the spring, as was my ordination. In the new year, I would be interviewed for my first assignment as a deacon in a parish church, serving as an assistant curate. I signed up for my final field placement, this time in a congregation, not an institution, where I could begin orienting myself to the actual ministry I would soon be taking on. Happily, the placement was with my old mentor, Tim Foley, from my youth group days at St. John's. Tim had gone on from there to plant a new suburban church in Aaron Mills in the western hinterlands of Toronto. The parish of St. Thomas a Becket was so new, it didn't yet have a building of its own. The congregation met on Sunday mornings in the gymnasium of an elementary school, this meant everything had to be set up. Altar, lectern, chairs, banners, and then taken down again afterward and stored till the next week. Tim had a background in journalism and an ongoing interest in communications, which he stoked by remaining involved in the media. He sat on the religious advisory board for local broadcaster CFTO and served as the director of communications for the Diocese of Toronto. He supervised my work as a student minister in his parish, but he also encouraged the work I was doing on my thesis on mass communications in the church. Because of our mutual interest in the media, Tim and I were sent by the diocese to a meeting of NABSWAC. The full title was laughably unmanageable, especially for an organization claiming to be about communications— the North American Broadcast Section of the Worldwide Association of Christian Communicators. The three-day conference was held in November in Los Angeles at the prestigious and historic Ambassador Hotel. The program was not only rich in content, but also useful for the many connections we made with church communications people from across the continent. I was eager on the evening of the second day to call Joan and tell her how it was all going— I knew it would be close to midnight there, but I called anyway, hoping she might still be awake. I was flummoxed when there was no answer. She had taken to working late in recent weeks, but not this late. Perhaps I had dialed a wrong number. I tried again. Still, no answer. Tim shared a room with me, and we both grew awkward at the unspoken implications. There would be some reasonable explanation, he said and I tried to agree, but I felt we were both compensating for some other worst-case scenario. Either she was in trouble, or, well, 
it would all become clear when we flew home in a few days. Ours had not been an easy marriage from the start. We were young. We had so much to learn about ourselves individually, let alone as a couple. Our relationship wasn't calamitous, but the connections between us kept breaking down. We each wanted different things. I wanted to follow my muse. She wanted to follow her career path. I wanted to consider ethical investing. She wanted to buy a Hudson's Bay stock, which happened to include South African holdings. We each carried within us unrealized dreams and aspirations, and the marriage was neither deep enough nor elastic enough to encompass them all. We were becoming millstones to each other. It would be three months before Joan finally admitted to me that she was in love with two men. The words sounded so strange to me that I thought she was telling me she was in love with two other men. Which ones, I asked, who are they? No, silly, she said, you're one of them. Marriage doesn't tend to work that way as a threesome, so we separated. We needed time and space to figure things out. She went home to her parents, or wherever, while I stayed in our downtown cockroach hotel. I didn't know what to think, but I knew how I felt, like I had just been kicked in the groin. I struggled not only with feeling rejected, but also with what this meant for my Christian ideals. We may have been unhappy, but still, a vow is a vow, and a vow before God isn't so easily broken. It never occurred to me to leave the marriage, and I never imagined Joan leaving it either, certainly not like this. Not only was my pride wounded, being the cuckold in this scenario, but my principles were violated as well. A Christian couple didn't divorce. They worked things out. They didn't go and fall in love with other people. The night Joan left, I didn't sleep at all. I got up before dawn and drove out to Scarborough Bluffs to watch the sunrise and contemplate my life. I was devastated to realize what had been going on. I went back in my mind and began filling in the calendar, nights when Joan had worked late or gone out with friends, including that night I called from Los Angeles. My imagination turned each one into a tryst. But the second night, wrung out and aching with exhaustion, I slept spread-eagle on the bed, I felt my spirit moving out from my body to take up the entire room, the apartment, the whole world. Oddly, I felt free, and I hadn't had to be the one to break the bonds. There would be a price to pay for this freedom, however, and it would be high. I was, just then, in the process of being interviewed for a position in a parish church, anticipating my ordination in the spring, I found myself sitting with the rector and church wardens in someone's living room in a well-appointed house in Markham. The interview had gone well, but as we were winding down, I thought I should reveal to them, in the interests of full disclosure, that my marriage was breaking up. The room fell silent. Did the archbishop know? the rector asked. No, I said. Things were just unfolding as we spoke. Another pause. Then maybe we ought to postpone things for a few days, the rector said. He needed to seek some advice. The next day I was called into the office of the archbishop. Louis Garnsworthy was an old-school prelate 
who ruled his realm with an iron will, despite the frilly cuffs showing from beneath his purple vestments. He was formidable in public and intimidating in person. He sat on the other side of his sizable desk. He did not get up when I entered. I could sense the wheels turning behind his inscrutable face. His elbows were poised on the arms of his chair, and he held the tips of his fingers together in front of his lips. His episcopal ring glistened in the morning sunlight. The sides of his mouth were turned down in a scowl. He asked about my marriage, and then looked away to gaze out the window as I told my story. When I'd finished, he turned back to look at me. My ordination, he said, would have to be postponed. You're not ready to take on the responsibilities of ministry, he said. You need to go work on your marriage situation. I couldn't feel my legs as I left his office. I turned the wrong way down the corridor. I would soon graduate with the rest of my classmates, but I wouldn't be ordained with them. I swallowed the bitter gall in the days that followed as my friends enthused in the buttery about their interviews and their placements, the ministries they were soon to take up, and the new life that spread out before them like a promise. One professor friend, my drinking buddy, would later say it impressed him that I said nothing. I didn't take my personal life onto the public stage, as he knew I was capable of doing. This was too big for that. I was deeply hurt and humiliated. I was crushed that my ordination would be postponed. I also wondered what this signaled about the ideals of my faith. Once again, the Good Shepherd, slinging some other lost sheep over his shoulder, had not protected me from the hand of fate. I needed to sleep alone with the pain and confusion for a while before bringing it out into the light of day, before figuring out what came next. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home Thank you for listening to this reading of my memoir, Last Rites, Leaving Churchland. It's a deep privilege for me to share with you something of my spiritual journey in the hopes that it will throw light on yours. If you'd like to tell me a personal story or to make a comment, you can leave a post on the Facebook group The Mystic Cave or write me an email directly at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. On the next episode, I enter the no-man's-land between graduation and ordination. But it would be a fruitful time. The Church may not have known quite what to do with me, but there were other forces at work nudging me along. Eventually, all those forces would align and I would receive my coveted flight clearance. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Yeah.